Oh, would you join me as we stand together and read God's Word and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you'll find today's text on page 10 and a chairback Bible in front of you. Our ongoing studies through Genesis will come to something of a short break after this morning's study of chapter 14 as the next three weeks will uh, be dealing with various things going on in the church, not least of which is next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll have a special ordination service for Dr. Uh, ben Dunson, and so you'll want to be here next week as we celebrate God's work and call in his life, and then Lord willing, we'll pick up our study in Genesis with chapter 15 on the first Lord's Day of 2020, but what we want to look at this morning is all of chapter 14. It's full of names and places, as we're soon to hear in just a minute as I read the passage. But you'll want to pay attention to this mysterious man that does show up at the end of the text, who's quite important in further biblical history. So let me just read the passage for us, and then pray that God will bless our study, and we'll begin. So here now, as God speaks to you through His good and perfect Word. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Berah, king of Sodom, Birshah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedalomer. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled, and in the fourteenth year Kedalomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Imim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Edmah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined in the valley of the, the battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedalomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. And these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And after his return from the defeat of Kedalomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, and that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram came and gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will not take anything but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do bow before you now for your God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that you rule over the nations, you reign over all peoples, that your Son is King of kings and Lord of lords. To him all submission and reverence and honor is due. So help us to bow the knees of our heart before you now as we listen to your word, as you conform us to the image of Christ, as you redeem us from our sin. As you fill us with the Spirit, we pray that we would indeed walk by faith and not by sight as we seek to follow you as your children. Help me to preach as your word says I must with faithfulness and obedience, clarity and courage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you may remember a relatively famous political event from the 1970s. It was known at the time as Operation Thunderbolt. It was on June 27, 1976, that the PLO terrorist organization hijacked an Air France plane that had just left Tel Aviv in Israel. And they rerouted the plane to Entebbe in Uganda, which was a hotbed of terrorism at the time in the 1970s. And with them, they took over 100 Israeli prisoners. And the Israeli government wasn't terribly interested in negotiating with the terrorists, and so they devised, they hatched a rescue mission by which they would go rescue these some 100 Israeli citizens. And so about 100 men in the crack Israeli defense force put together this plan by which they would travel the 2,500 miles south to Uganda under the cover of radar by flying ordinarily underneath 100 feet in the air to sneak in. And they arrived and went on this covert mission at night into the fortress where the hostages were held. And their tactics succeeded. They quickly took all the hostages back and won a a mighty victory that even one historian has called the most auspicious special forces operation in history. And I tell you that because what we look at tonight is undoubtedly, and it may surprise you in certain ways, the most auspicious special forces event in patriarchal history. As we see Abram, the man of faith, show himself to be also the man who fights. As he himself is going to go on this special forces rescue mission, he of course isn't going to try to get back a hundred hostages, he's just trying to get one. His beloved nephew, his adopted son of sorts, this man named Lot. A man who we focused more on last week if you were with us when we studied chapter 13. We saw that Abram and Lot were quite wealthy, and 
In fact, so wealthy that the land couldn't support all of their wealth, their livestock. And so the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot, they were fighting over, it appears, pastures and watering holes for their herds. And so they needed to do something about this strife because the land couldn't support both families. And so Abram was faced with a test there, a test of faith right from the outset of following God and his call out of Ur. And the test was simply this. Did he trust in God's promise to provide offspring when, as it were, his only offspring, Lot, would go away from the promised land? And could he trust God enough to provide land when that very land couldn't sustain two families, let alone families as numerous as the dust of the earth, God says at the end of chapter 13. But Abram did. It was a test that told us God does provide for his people. He fulfills his promise even in the most impossible of circumstances. Abram passed the test and let Lot go. And what we see now in chapter 14 this morning is the consequences for Lot, but also for Abram in letting Lot go. The immediate fallout, if you will, by them separating as Abram has to engage in this heroic rescue mission to restore and, in a real sense, redeem Lot. And so in the midst of this fighting scene, this battle scene, what you want to see is it tells us something about God's power, God's conquering kingship through His people. Uh, You want to see the main point from our study this morning is that God provides the victory to His faithful servants. The battle belongs to the Lord. He fights for His people. He grants the victory to His children as they live by faith. And so kids, what you want to recognize from the outset even of this text in our study is that the Christian life is a fighting life. Uh, The Bible tells us that we don't wrestle against fleshly kings like Abram does in this passage. But we do, don't we, wrestle against the forces of evil. These cosmic powers in the heavenly places that the Christian life is all about fighting the good fight of faith. And so you're going to want to see that this morning as Abram embodies that in his very life, as he's fighting the good fight of faith, as he's resting and and realizing faith in God's promise to provide for him. But kids, you're also going to want to pay attention, as I mentioned already, by the end of the passage to this man named Melchizedek. Be ready to ask your parents a question later today, children. What's so important about Melchizedek? So parents, be ready with an answer. What's so important about Melchizedek? Because he is mysteriously and surprisingly significant to subsequent biblical teaching. And this is the only time he appears in all the Old Testament. So you want to pay attention to. We have just three simple parts to the passage that I've just marked off with words of notorious victorious and mysterious. So a notorious enemy in the first 12 verses. Uh, What you want to know is that essentially what we have here in the first 12 verses is an ordinary battle in the ancient Near East between warlords and their vassals. It's quite simple. Amidst all of these names of the locations and the various kings, it's very simple what's going on here. So I just want to survey it quickly for you to get the sense of what is causing Abram to go on this rescue mission by the middle of our passage. So first you want to notice the kingdoms. Look at verse 1. Just a couple of kingdoms. First of all, you have Amraphel, the king of Shinar. Now, does anyone remember from our study of Genesis Shinar's most famous city. 
Babel, right? Chapter 11, notice verse 2, we have the king of Sodom, which becomes a byword, doesn't it, in biblical history for great wickedness and sin before the Lord. These kings fighting with each other in that ancient Near Eastern land. And so what you want to know is that what we have here is then a battle that's getting ready to ensue between the sinister kingdoms, some of the most sinister kingdoms that you find in all of Scripture. But it's not just the kingdoms that we want to pay attention to, but also the conflict. Because you see that the head honcho in this whole scene is a king named Catalomer. He's ruling over these vassal states. So what that means is he's got these five kings mentioned in verse 2. Uh, these are in the Canaanite area. They are vassals of Catalomer, which just means annually these lesser kings with their lesser kingdoms have to pay tribute, produce, likely money, to Catalomer. And you'll notice what we're told in verse 4 is that they did this for 12 years. In the 13th year, they said, no more as often happens in political history. There's a rebellion that comes. And so conflict ensues, because in the 14th year, we're told Catalomer takes his three allies and wages war on these vassal states. He wants to squash the rebellion. He wants to return his subjects to their proper place, subjugation. And he seemingly, if you just kind of read through the text and scan your eyes through it, does it quite easily. If you notice the summary outcome of this conflict in verse 10 and 11, we're told that now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So it's a show of strength. Now you want to understand, this is a show of the mighty power of this man named Catalomer. He just dispatches with these five lesser kings, takes all their provisions, takes all their possessions, that's the conflict, because that's who Abram is getting ready to fight against, this mighty force of Catalomer, which gets us to the third thing you want to see in this first section is the captivity. That's the whole point. How did Abram, how does Abram get himself involved in the conflict? Well, look at verse 12. It's the captivity of Lot, isn't it? They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. You may recall from last week as we studied chapter 13, Abram and Lot are trying to settle this strife that they're experiencing in their family. And Abram says, Lot, look out on the land and just decide which way you want to go. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And so Lot lifts up his eyes, the text says, and he sees that the Jordan Valley is well watered. It's lush, it's flourishing in its wealth-providing potential. So much so, to Lot's eyes, it looks like Eden in Egypt, the text says. And so Lot says, I'm taking the Jordan Valley. He's living by sight, not by faith. And we saw that he went and pitched his tent near Sodom. Verse 12 and 13 of chapter 13 tell us. This great city of wickedness. But what do we see by verse 12 of chapter 14? He's not near Sodom, is he? He's dwelling in Sodom. Now, some of you may need the challenge, students maybe especially on this, is how there is this sucking power of sin. And sometimes you think you can just live close by it and stay separated and detached. But seemingly with 
each passing action and temptation, each passing week and month, you get closer and closer. You find yourself in a place where you ought not to be and think everything's going to be okay. But as so often happens with such circumstances, Lot finds himself swept up in the consequence of living among this great wickedness, and he thought it would never be that way. And maybe you find yourself today in a place where you ought not to be, and you think it's okay. And like Lot, you're soon to be swept up in the consequences of the darkness that surrounds you. So this is the notorious enemy. This is the captivity that leads to Abram's victorious pursuit in the next four verses. When I was doing doctoral work, one of my supervisors is a master historian, and he got on my case one day by saying, Jordan, you have to memorize all the dates. Because I was doing something in church history. You know, I probably had some look on my face, like, who needs the dates, you know? You have to memorize all the dates. That's what real historians do. And uh, we subsequently had this conversation about the pros and cons of learning history through dates. Because I was making the argument that, yes, you have to learn the dates, but it's much better to learn the stories through the people, through the kings, the political powers, the rulers. Because sometimes all you got to do is pay attention to a ruler's nickname, and suddenly you have interest in the story. So, for example, it's one thing to know that King Charles I was installed as king in 1327. That's totally different when you find out he was nicknamed the bankrupt king. You think, ah, oh, i got to figure out something about his fiduciary foolishness that seems to have marked this guy of many years ago. Or there's King John I, who became king in 1199. He was called the soft sword. So weak was he in battle. Or stronger is King Edward III of Scotland, called the hammer of the Scots. You know, name sometimes draws you into the story. I say only that because we get a nickname for Abram. Do you notice in verse 13? Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. It's the first time in all of Scripture we get this word Hebrew. The Hebrew, Abram, found out his nephew was taken. So what you need to see in the midst of just this simple title, sanctified, significant nickname, if you will, is that Abram was a man of a a kingly nature at this time in the ancient Near East. And even the name Hebrew is quite significant, not just because of what it would mean subsequently in Israel's history. Look back up to verse 1. Catalomer was king of what? Elam. That means he descended from the firstborn son of Shem. Shem was Noah's oldest son, the one through whom the promised blessing was going to come because it was from Shem's line that Abram came and Abram's line, Abraham's line, that the Messiah would come. And so what's interesting, though, is that Shem eventually brings us to Catalomar, king of Elam, this wicked, notorious enemy. Yet the younger son of Shem was a man named Eber, which as best we can tell is where this word Hebrew comes from. And here's why it's significant. It's an early echo of a theme that's already been present in Genesis and will subsequently come to dominate the story. A younger son displacing an older son. It happens with Cain and Abel. It happens, doesn't it, with Ishmael and Isaac. 
Esau and Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, Manasseh and Ephraim, here with Elam and Eber, Catalomer and Abram. This idea that God tends to, often in his sovereign providence and mysterious decree, upset the natural order of things. That he seems to do surprising things, work through the underrated, the underemphasized, work through the underdogs, which is very much what Abram would have been in this moment. You'll notice as verse 13 continues, he has a couple of allies, and so he calls them to his assistance. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went as far as Dan. So students, if you can picture this, you've got a force of 318, however many men the allies would have brought him. Certainly they would have been outnumbered in this sense. They're going 120 miles north in pursuit of Catalomer. They get there. And it's fascinating to me with the way the text goes. Verse 15, you just look through it. He divides his force. Abram does as something of a great general in the ancient world. He divides his force at night. And he just dispatches with seeming ease this vaunted, notorious enemy. And not only that, what verse 15 tells us, he pursues the enemy even further north, 45 miles north of Damascus. And so... His victory was as complete as Catalomer's earlier victory was. You see in verse 16, then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, kids, I want you to look down at verse 14 and 16 again and see if you can figure out the word that's mentioned in both verses that start with the letter K. You see it, don't you? kinsmen. Now your ears, if you know God's word, ought to be pricked. Abram here is function as a kinsman redeemer. Can you not help but think of the coming kinsman redeemer whose name would be Jesus Christ? Because later on in God's law, it was required of the nearest relative of someone sold into slavery of that nearest relative to redeem him back. And Abram here is going and redeeming his kinsmen, Lot. But you see, he's not doing it with the purchase of money as it was often done later on in Israel's history. He's doing it with the strength of his sword. And what the Bible is going to tell us in the good news of Jesus Christ is that our true kinsman, Redeemer, he comes to redeem people taken captive by sin and Satan. He too is going to do it with a sword. But this is not a sword of strength and force that he's going to wield, is it? A sword that he's going to plunge into his own heart as he takes the judgment of those in captivity upon himself bearing it in their place that they might be set free and delivered, restored to God's family. So you want to see here, not only Abram function is something like this foreshadowing of a kinsman redeemer, but he's also foreshadowing what's going to happen in Israel's subsequent history as they take this conquest of the land. That Abram is going throughout the promised land. He's dispatching the enemies. He's protecting God's people. And the original audience for Genesis was the nation of Israel. Likely probably soon to go into the land of conquest with their general leader, God's chosen servant, Joshua. And so as they read this story, I see their father of many generations before find victory through his faith in God's power. They too are sustained. Surely you would think they'd be comforted that yes, God grants the victory to his faithful servants. That's exactly what happens here with Abram as he rescues Lot. So the victorious pursuit now 
leads us to this mysterious king in the rest of the text. January of 1945, three world leaders met in what probably was the most significant political conference of the 20th century. World War II, you might remember, was hot still at that time, even though it was winding down. Joseph Stalin, William Churchill, Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, uh, they get together, Winston, Franklin, and Joseph, at Yalta in Crimea to make these massive decisions about the fate of the free world subsequent to World War II. A three-leader conference, we see also, you'll notice, in verse 17, we have the king of Sodom with Abram, who's something like the king of the Hebrews. A most momentous decision is soon going to have to be discussed. you notice they get together at the end of verse 17 in the king's valley. A king of the Hebrews, the king of Sodom, and then shows up another king, this third ruler, this third leader at this spiritual conference so many centuries ago. Notice verse 18, Melchizedek. Now, kids, you can say that name ten times in a row and probably entertain your parents. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And you want to know, what is the deal with this mysterious man named Melchizedek? He's only mentioned in a couple of these verses, and yet Psalm 110 says Jesus, God's son to come, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and Psalm 110 is the most quoted, the most referenced psalm in all of the New Testament. And then we get Hebrews 5, 6, and the entirety of Hebrews chapter 7 meditating on this man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek apparently fascinated the apostles. Why? Well, let's get his basic information. First of all, he's a king. You see that? He's the king of Salem. King of righteousness. King of an area that would soon become Jerusalem. He's also a priest. You see the parenthetical statement at the end of verse 17. He's priest of God Most High. And as a priest, you notice he does priestly things. He gives a benediction on Abram in verse 19 and 20. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. You see, Melchizedek gets the point, doesn't he? God grants the victory to his faithful servants. The battle belongs to the Lord. The blessing of victory comes to his faithful servants. So he's a king. He's a priest. He's also superior to Abram. You see that in verse 20 at the end? Abram gave a tenth, a tithe of everything to Melchizedek. He's more significant, which is stunning if you understand it truly, than Abram. But in many ways, he's not just a king, he's not just a priest, he's not just superior to Abram. In this text, he's almost a contrast, most significantly. Because what you'll find is what Abram is presented here at the end of chapter 14 is yet another test, yet another trial, yet another temptation, and it's this. Which king is he going to take a blessing from? The king of Sodom or the king of Salem? King of Sodom or Melchizedek? For notice the king of Sodom's urging and blessing of sorts in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
So at its most basic level, the temptation here for Abram is, will you take a get-rich-quick scheme from the wicked king of Sodom? Or will you trust in God's power to provide through the simple word of benediction of Melchizedek? And is that not often a temptation and test that we face, trusting in God's sovereignty more than the world's security? When the world offers these fleeting pleasures, these fleeting powers, these fleeting matters of prestige, all the while God says, here's my promise. And which one will you receive? Which one will you take? Well, Abram is quite clear and firm in his faith, isn't he? Look at verse 22 through 24. He says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. I will take the blessing of Yahweh, not the blessing of of a wicked, sinful king. Even though, if you understand it, one brings immediate tangible benefits and another requires him to continue to wait. Maybe that's your temptation this week. Grasping something that requires you to wait when a simple solution and more tangible opportunity could take its place. Abram trusts in God's provision of the victory through his faith as this offer to this mysterious man named Melchizedek. When Emily and I first got married, we were living in a house that we were trying to be as frugal as possible as young married people tend to be, and so we didn't have internet and we didn't have cable television. Emily was working as a full-time NICU nurse at this time, so three evenings a week she was gone. And I thought to myself, you know, one day, what am I going to do with all this time on my hands? You know, there's no children to play with. I don't seem to be that popular with that many friends, you know, to go hang out with during the week. So I'll play my guitar, you know, in a vacant room and turn up the amplifier and annoy the neighbors. And when that ran its course, I thought, well, what am I going to do now? And So I decided one day, you know, this light bulb moment that happens to introverts like myself, I'm going to go to the library. And so I check out this DVD series that many of you may have watched called Band of Brothers. And I watched that thing, you know, like all night. And ever since then, I've had this fascination with military history. That's what I used to do with all those hours in the evening, you know, just read books on military history, watch documentaries I could grab from the library on military history. I know quite a few of you here in the room might be something of armchair military historians in your own study, in your own hobby interest. But I do want you to know that I hope you are trying to be experts in spiritual military history, understanding that the Christian life is this life of faith that fights, this life that battles in the Lord's power, battles according to the Lord's promises. Abram is immediately summoned early on in his pilgrimage through the promised land to a battle that required immense faith. And sure enough, all of us will be there one day if we haven't been there already or aren't there right now. That's what I want to do here at the end is just meditate on two more things that we see in Melchizedek tell us about God's promise in the midst of this fight of faith. And the first thing I want you to see is God's promise has surprising power. 
God's promise has surprising power. Melchizedek is this man that has marveled many, so much so that someone said, his mystery has caused scholars to comment more on this chapter than any other chapter in the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. People want to know, who is this man, Melchizedek? You notice, he just shows up out of nowhere. He disappears as quickly as he came. We know nothing about his family. Even the author to the Hebrews reflects back on him saying he has no birthday, dying day, genealogy. He is a man who seems to be eternal. And the point for the author to the Hebrews isn't that Melchizedek is eternal. It's just in the sweep of Genesis. He seems to be because there's no genealogy and we get genealogies of the most important figures in Genesis. But he did have a dying day. He did have a birthday. But maybe you just need to meditate for just a second on the amazing surprise that is Melchizedek's very presence. Sometimes you can read Genesis in such a way and think that the only believers in Yahweh at this time would have been in Abram's family line. This kind of narrow view of God's work in redemptive history. How often isn't it true that we have this kind of myopic view of it's only my context and my situation in which God is working? And we forget that His promise has surprising power in all kinds of ways. We never knew it was working. He's converted. He's saved. He's called this priest king in Salem to himself, and he just shows up and disappears right away. Because God is always doing, isn't he? Probably billions and billions of things we will never know about, yet solidifying his purpose among the nations at the same time. So never let yourself cease to be amazed at the astonishing, surprising grace and power of God's promise. But the more important thing I want you to see here at the end and this is the last thing to mention, is not just that God's promise has surprising power, God's promise has certain power. Certain power. Because when God called Abram out of Ur, you might remember this from chapter 12, verse 3, the final promise that he seemingly gave to Abram in that moment of calling him was, I will bless those who bless you and dishonor those who dishonor you. And do you see how just two chapters later, God's already securing that promise? I will bless those who bless you dishonor those who curse you. My promise is secure. My promise is sure. My promise is steady. My promise is stable. You can stake your life on the certainty of my promise. So what is the big deal about Melchizedek? Why is he so important to the rest of the Bible? Well, if you think on it simply and carefully enough, it's just this. Melchizedek was of the highest priesthood in all the Old Testament. He was also the greatest high priest in all the Old Testament, Hebrews 7 tells us. Melchizedek is the high priest of the Old Testament scriptures, and yet Jesus Christ is even greater than Melchizedek. More sure is the hope of the high priest whose name is Jesus. Better are the promises of the high priest whose name is Jesus. Melchizedek brings an offering of blessing to Abram. And Abram takes it, as Abram rightly knows by faith, it's not his military conquest, it's not his mighty deeds performed in service of the Lord that can grant him access to the Father. He must go through a priest to receive God's blessing. And the priest for Abram was this man named Melchizedek. 
And what you must also understand then as well, you too must go through a priest to receive God's blessing. A priest who's better than Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek surely as a priest in that ancient world would have been offering the blood of bulls and goats and rams to atone for the sin of God's people. Blood that would have poured forth year after year and however long his priestly ministry lasted. But we know that the flowing blood of priestly offerings reached its final fulfillment and stopping place at the hill called Calvary when Jesus Christ shed his blood once and for all finally to pay the penalty for sins so that anyone who wants the blessing of God, fellowship with the Father, the benediction of God Most High must go through Jesus Christ who is the only high priest for sinners like you and me. Of course, then, the necessary, significant, eternal question for all of us is this morning, who is going to get you to the blessing of God? Some of you are trusting in yourself, thinking your mission courage, mighty deeds will get you to God's blessing. Some of you, children, students, are trusting in your family's heritage to get you to God's blessing. Whatever it may be, if it is not Jesus Christ, the high priest and true offspring of Abraham, that blessing cannot come to sinners like you and me. But if you find yourself, by turning from your sin and trusting in this high priest, pleading with him for his mediation, pleading for him for his intercession, pleading for him to let his blood cleanse you of your iniquity, then you receive God's benediction of God Most High. And so then what is to be the life song of sorts for us is the doxology of 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, the true offspring of Abraham, the greater priest, higher than even Melchizedek, to whom we cling by faith alone for God's blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we do bow before you now wanting to admit that we are a people who tend to trust in things that cannot satisfy, tend to trust in things that cannot pay the penalty for our sin. Do help us to cling to your promise in Jesus Christ who is the yes and amen to all of your covenant mercies. Let us praise the great high priest whoever lives to make intercession for us who is the go-between between sinners like us and a holy God like you that we might indeed have fellowship, the blessing of eternal life and full forgiveness of sins through his shed blood. So help us to walk in faith towards him, we pray, as we want to walk in victory in this life that fights for faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 100.